Children's Church, you may be dismissed. Go on over and follow flow over there. Look at that. Remembered it two weeks in a row. Two weeks in a row. I'm getting there. You know, uh, that last song, uh, Hallelujah Here Below, I really love that song. Um, we played it at the house this past week. Uh, actually, I think it was yesterday. I was playing it on the TV, and uh, Claire, my daughter, she's uh, just turned two, she started singing along with it. Um, her, although her hallelujah was more like how to do da, but she was singing at the top of her lungs along with it. It was precious. So, you know, word says out of the mouth of babes, God's perfected praise. So um, we're going to do a little bit of review, but um, if you want to go ahead, we're going to be in Genesis chapter two. Um, once we get there, we're going to be in Genesis chapter two, verse 15. So Three weeks ago, we started this Emmaus journey, quote-unquote, and I think it's we can safely call it a, a series now. I kind of believe I've received the direction that God wants us to go in this Emmaus series. Um, originally, though, we called it a journey because we didn't know exactly how long it was going to be or how many weeks or messages it was going to consist of. We just knew that this was the direction that God was taking us, and so we labeled it, we're on a journey with Jesus, trying to learn about Jesus. Um, and so we started in Luke 24 with the road to Emmaus, where the two disciples were walking and Jesus walked up behind them. And for whatever reason, he was concealed before their eyes and started asking them what they were talking about. And they were talking about all the things that had happened in the ministry of Jesus with his death and you know, they weren't believers in his resurrection yet, and we've seen several verses that indicated that. But then Jesus rebukes him and says, Oh, foolish or slow of heart, was not all these things supposed to happen? And so then he goes through the whole Bible and he starts telling them how the entirety from Genesis all the way up until Malachi at that point, because the New Testament had been, had been written, all pointed to Jesus. And so in like fashion, we started with Genesis. However, we went all the way to Revelation and showed at least one picture for every book of the Bible, how it pointed to Jesus and showed that Jesus is the fullness of Scripture. In the volume of the book, it's written of me to do thy will, O God. And so we really looked at that and focused on, okay, Christianity is all about Jesus. It's Jesus Christ plus or minus nothing. And the thing I love so much about the Alliance is even the statement that I have on the website on the front page. It's since the beginning of our movement, it's been not so much to preach doctrine, but to preach Jesus Christ. That's a quote taken by one of the founders teams, uh, George Partington, when the Alliance was first catching movement and first getting established. And that's really the spirit of this movement that we've joined in with the Alliance. This movement that I believe that the church is going to take as an individual church. We're just going to try and make it all about Jesus and give everything to Him. What we preach, what we teach, what we sing about when we're in the street, what we talk to people about when we're doing outreaches, it's all going to be Jesus-oriented. It's not going to be oriented about uh, as far as like a seeker-friendly movement, it's not going to be oriented on a whole bunch of just, you've got to do this, don't do this, you can do this, you probably shouldn't do that. We're getting aside from that. Rules and regulations are great, but what's even better than that is having a relationship with Jesus and allowing the Spirit to produce that fruit in you, and then you fulfill the rules and regulations without even trying to fulfill the rules and regulations, if that makes sense. See, I can give somebody a standard list of everything that you have to do in a relationship. 
Like this is the way that you should talk to your spouse. This is the way that you should treat them. This is the way that you guys should do things together. Not saying that, that I'm going to do that. I'm just saying that you can give a standard list of things that a person can should do for their wife or for their husband. Yet if they fall head over heels in love with that individual, they'll start doing those things from a source of love and they'll meet those criteria and then go beyond those criteria because of love. So what I'm focused on and what I believe that this journey, this Emmaus journey is focused on is let's just fall in love with Jesus and let the love that we have for Jesus and the love that Jesus has for us produce that in us so that it starts fulfilling those rules and regulations through us, if that makes sense. So then the second week of our Emmaus journey, we kind of answered the question that we had posed in the first week. Was the Emmaus Road a success or a failure? And we answered it was all, and we went through how was it a success, how was it a failure, and why was it both, and why was it neither? And we answered all of those questions, and I'm not going to do those now. But one of the things that we established was the reason that it was a failure was because they dictated where they stopped. When Jesus made like he would go on, they decided they were going to stop in the end and they begged Jesus to stop with him. And we looked at a couple examples in Scripture around the life of Saul and we realized that as long as Jesus is recognized and acknowledged and worshipped as Lord, the manifestation of his presence will be there. But the moment that we stop recognizing him as Lord, then we will lose that blessed manifestation of His presence. So for this church and for this body, the one thing that I encourage each one of you to do in your individual life so that then we can come together and do it corporately is make Jesus the Lord of your life in every area of your life. Not just in your Sunday and Wednesday confessions and not just when you're around other people that say that they're Christian, but every area of your life make Jesus Lord. When you look at what you want to wear for the day, when you look at how you want to talk to somebody, how you want to respond to a bad situation, make Jesus the Lord of your life in those situations and channel all of your actions, your words, and your decisions through Jesus being Lord of your life. And then we looked at Jesus being built, the church being built upon the rock, which is Christ, or the rock of the revelation that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah. And so we established that picture, Jesus is the foundation that the church is built upon. And I believe that I, b before last Sunday I had received the direction that God wanted to take this journey or this series was that we were going to look at the relationships between Jesus and the church. And there's a few main ones. There's a whole lot of what I call transcendent or abstract relationships between God and the church. Like, He's the Savior, the church is the saved. He's the Redeemer, the church is the redeemed. He's God and we're the people. He's the shepherd and we're the sheep. There's a whole bunch of transcendent relationships. But there's a lot of what I call imminent or intimate relationships as well. Like, He's the head and we're the body. He's the vine and we're the branch. He's the bridegroom and we're the bride. And so what I want to do, because we laid the foundation that Jesus is the foundation that the church is built upon, He's the chief cornerstone of the temple of God. And then before that, when we first began and He was teaching the disciples on the road to Emmaus, He had that relationship of teacher and student. I wanted to pursue that and look at him being the groom and us being the bride and him being the vine and us being the branches and look at a few of those and see where that takes us. But last Thursday, I was really weighing heavy on my heart and a song kept playing in my head and it says, you, you can have this whole world, just give me Jesus. You can have this whole world, just give me Jesus. 
And so I kind of did what I called a water break. We took a break from our journey just for a second to just ask ourselves a question. What do we possess that we idolize above Jesus? And we looked at Philippians 3 and he said, Paul says, Whatsoever is gain to me, that I counted as loss, that I might win Christ, that I might attain Christ. And so we asked the question and the thing that we focused on was, is there anything in our life, anything, not just bad, because we're always willing to give up the bad. We're always willing to give up the sin, the sickness, the debt, the burdens, the bad relationships, the bad friendships, the enemies, the circumstances, the troubles at our job. We're always willing, God, just take that. You can have all of that bad stuff. But whatsoever is gain to me, Paul says, even the stuff that I counted as good, as valuable, as the best of the best, those are the things that I was willing to count as worthless, as loss, so that I might win Christ. To the extent, he goes on to say, that I might know Him and the power of His re resurrection being made conformable to His death and the fellowship of His sufferings and all of that. But he says that I may know Him. So we really ask the question, is, there, is it a career is it money? Is it certain relationships? Is there something there that we hold on to that's become an idol in our life that we don't want to give up for Jesus? Because here's the thing, and this is a quote by Charles Spurgeon. He says, if Jesus isn't everything to you, then He's actually nothing to you. And that quote wrecks me and challenges me because it's the extent of are you willing to give up everything and anything, no matter what it is, no matter how good it is? And I used a personal example about being pastor and how I am so thankful and I've worked so hard and I've prayed so much and I've fasted and I've strived to be the pastor of a church and to step out into ministry because I've really, really wanted that. And now I am able to pastor this church and I love everyone here and I I gave the disclaimer, God's not telling me to give it up, just for the record. But I said, and the point was, if God came to me and said, I want you to give that up, the thing apart from family, from wife and kids, the thing that is most valuable to me, ministry, and God said, give that up, would I be willing to give that up? Would I actually be willing to give that up? Or is the ministry that I do for God more important to me than my relationship to God? And so that was the challenge for me from a personal perspective. This is the thing outside of my family that I value above anything else. More than money because I don't care if we struggle. I don't want to struggle, but if we do, it's just part and parcel with the gig. I don't care if we get attacked from all sides, from social standpoints, from sickness standpoints. Like We'll deal with that as it comes. But the thing that's most valuable to me is the work that I do for Jesus. Would I be willing to give that up and just serve Him in love and worship Him? And the answer has to be yes, because if Jesus isn't everything to me, then He's not anything to me. And so that was the challenge for last week on our water break. But I realized something, that we've learned from Jesus, we're established on Jesus, and now he has to, we have to be consumed by Jesus. It really wasn't a water break at all, but rather it was a very important foundational step for us to really press into this journey. 
Like we have to understand who Jesus is in the light of Scripture and the Holy Spirit has to reveal that to us. We also have to realize that we're built and founded on the foundation that He laid. Paul says other foundation can no man lay but that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. But then we also have to realize that we have to be entirely captivated and consumed by Jesus. So today, I know that was a, a big... Uh, section there for recap, but today we're going to look at the relationship between Jesus as the bridegroom and us as his bride, or Jesus as the husband and us as his bride. And some of this, it's actually, there's two applications to this message. There's the one which is Jesus and the church, and then there's the other which is the husband and the wife. And they're so closely intertwined that some of this will apply to both and some of this will apply to one or the other. So when we look at Jesus and his relationship to the church, the point we made last week is Jesus is always unified with the church, yet he's distinct in those relationships. Like we said, the vine is always united with the branches, yet it's distinct and identified as the vine. The husband and the wife are one, yet it's distinct that he is the husband, and so on and so forth. So, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the, man, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man shall be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, don't lose that place because we're going to come back to chapter 3 in just a second. But you guys might remember some of you were here when I came in December, December 7th, and I came down and I preached a message to the church, um, kind of feeling it out, meeting everybody, and seeing if you guys would actually want me as pastor and if this was something that my wife and I felt God calling us to. And the message that I preached was actually on this passage, or at least a part of it. It was about the creation of the bride of the church. And I won't preach that message again, but essentially what it was is we looked at the creation of man, of Adam, and how God had taken the dust of the earth and formed it with his hands. He had spoken, let us make man in our image, and he breathed into the man. Three-part creation, three-part being. Then we looked at the coming of Christ and how God forms every fetus in the womb how the Spirit had overshadowed Mary, and how God had promised through prophets and through the angel Gabriel that the Messiah would come through the Virgin, and specifically through the Virgin Mary. So Christ in His flesh, in His being born in the flesh, because Christ was made in the flesh, but Christ was never created because He's an eternal being. Christ came. So His fleshly making or fashioning of His flesh was identical or parallel to that of Adam. 
And then we walked through and we seen how Adam, how his wife was made. God caused a deep sleep, which in the Hebrew, that word sleep, you can trace it through or just specifically that word sleep, even through the English. Paul says, many of you sleep, referencing many dead. When Jesus is talking about Lazarus, he said, Lazarus sleeps. And then he plainly says, Lazarus is dead. So we're looking at that essentially when God calls that sleep and then opened Adam's side and pulled that rib out and made woman. Christ on the cross, the last thing that happened to him when they were checking, usually they break the legs and that's how they make sure that the person on the cross is dead. However, when the centurion came to break Christ's legs to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him should be broken, he seen Christ had already given up the ghost. So instead of breaking his legs, he took a spear and he punctured his side. And we looked at John 19, how out of the side of Christ flowed blood and water and he had already given up the spirit. All three of those are mentioned specifically in John 19. So out of Adam's side, God opened his side up after the, while he was asleep, pulled the rib out and fashioned wo woman. And Christ, at his death, once sleep had overcame him, his side was opened up and blood and water came out. And then we went to 1 John 5. And I'm, I'm going really fast because I don't want to re spend all our time re-preaching this message. But in John chapter 5, there's a section there and it's called the Johenan Comma. And it's not in a lot of the church Bibles because it's NIV. It was actually originally a footnote, not the actual manuscript. But then later, the Latin Vulgate, they added it into. That's why King James has this passage and NIV and ESV don't. But 1 John 5, 7 and 8, it talks about these three bear witness in the heaven. The Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, or the Word, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. And these three bear witness in the earth. The water, the blood, and the Spirit. And so when Christ's side was opened up and water and blood flowed out and He had already given up the Spirit and the Spirit is in the church, then we realize that what was flowing out of Christ's side was the very things that bear witness in the earth. And what is the church supposed to do but bear witness in the church or in the earth? So therefore, we can kind of use a little bit of symbolism, a little bit of allegory, and we can follow that through and realize that just as man was created three ways, Christ was made then his side was opened up following the format for Eve's creation. The church was formed from Christ's side, and that was the birthplace of the church. Therefore, because it was bone of bone, flesh of flesh, we can now follow that through and see that Christ, we are essentially bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. Does that make sense? Because that was really quick. Okay, so now I want to look at verse 3, or chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent then said to the woman, You shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was delightful to the eyes, and that there was a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Pause break. This is one of the primary verses that I 
envision when we change the name to the garden. The Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. We have the ability to walk with God in the cool of the day every day. And even when they were in sin, even when they had fallen, even when they had fallen short, the Lord God did not come in anger. He did not come in the heat of the day. He still came at the same time to walk with man and then caused man to discover their own sin. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. This is the blame game. What would you do? The woman gave it to me. Then the woman says, What is it you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me. And then you get in with all of the, uh, the condemning or the repercussions of the curse. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And here's the big verse. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is actually the first prophecy concerning the coming of Christ is the seed of the woman. Women typically don't have seeds, but the only woman that was ever given a seed was was Mary in the coming of Christ because he had no earthly father. But the point that I want to point out right here with this passage, and I know that was a lot of reading, is the serpent says to the woman, has God really said this? And for so long, we've always preached that the devil knew that he couldn't come at God, so he was going to come at man and sever man's relationship with God. But that's really a byproduct of what he was doing here. The serpent was not coming at man to sever man's relationship with God. The serpent was coming at man to sever man's relationship with his wife, and I can prove it to you. The serpent asked Eve, He said, did God really say you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Now, ladies, this applies specifically to you. God Almighty in His fullness appears to you in your kitchen or in your living room so that I don't get misogynistic by saying kitchen. Appears to you in your living room and God tells you, this tree, don't eat of it. And then a serpent comes slithering in and says, Did God really say that? Ladies, every one of you, I can picture you getting all thug life. Of course he did. I just watched him say it. I know I'm not supposed to eat of that. Get out of my house. Maybe take a a Glock 9, because I was going to say broom, but that would be misogynistic again. Maybe take a Glock 9 after the serpent. You're not going to allow someone to put doubt in if you literally just saw God say it. But in the passage, and the reason why I started in Genesis 2.15, because verse 16, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but you can't eat of this one. It never says that God told the woman. So God told the man, Adam. Adam conveyed that message to Eve, and Eve did not hear it specifically from God. So when the serpent came along, he was able to lay a foundation of doubt so that Eve might be able to believe what he was about to propitiate, which was a lie. See, the devil didn't start off with a lie. He started off with doubt. So it's more like this. I'm standing in the backyard. God appears to me and says, don't eat of this tree. 
I'm blown away by the revelation, seeing God. I run in and I tell Faith, hey, Faith, God just appeared to me. He said we can't eat of this tree. Okay. She believes me all well and good, super excited about that vision. A month later, snake comes in. And the snake starts talking to her. Or because people have fear of snakes and that kind of thing, a person comes and says, let me ask you, did God really say don't eat of that tree? Because now it's not her revelation from God, but it's what God gave me, and now it's going to be her confidence in me. Not her confidence in God, her confidence in me that I can adequately and sufficiently hear and see from God. Does that make sense? So now it's the woman's dependence upon the man, not the woman's dependence specifically on God because it went through the man to the woman. In this case, not saying God can't speak directly to women, but what I am saying is in this case, he spoke to the man and the man conveyed that message to the woman. So Satan comes and he lays the foundation of doubt saying, did God really say that? So now she's questioning, well, I don't know. Adam said that he did. So now she's running through, well, has Adam always told me the truth? Has he always hit it right on, on the head? Has he always been 100% right? So now in the little picture that I've painted with faith, this person comes along and says, did God really say that to Aaron? So now she's got to start running through a filter of every time that I've messed up and every time that I've succeeded. Because I have stood up here in other churches and I've said something that I 100% believed was the Word of God, but really it was in another person's interpretation of the Word of God and I went back and publicly confessed, hey, I got it wrong on that. Because I too am human and I can get it wrong. So now she's got to weigh her confidence in me like, is this one of his, I believe God told me this, but it's actually my interpretation and not the reality of the Scripture, or is this actually what God said? So it's laying a foundation of doubt between Eve and her husband, Adam. So doubt laid the foundation. It preceded the lie. It sets the stage. But that whole stage was set because of Adam's failure. God commanded Adam to keep the garden. Keep doesn't just mean to dress and make the bushes look a certain way. Keep also means to keep what's in, in, to keep what's out, out, to protect, to guard. So the serpent really shouldn't have been able to get to Eve and deceive Eve because Adam really should have been keeping the serpent out. So it was Adam's failure that produced Eve's sin, and Eve's sin was produced by her believing the doubt and allowing the doubt to set the stage so she bit wholeheartedly into the lie that the enemy set up for her. Now, if you would, I know we've been doing a lot of reading, but we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. And this is where there's going to be a little bit of crossover. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is, his, is himself its Savior. He's the Savior of the church. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word 
so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So here's the, here's the simple... The husband is supposed to reflect Christ and Christ's nature to the church. The wife is supposed to reflect the church, the ideal, not what the church actually does because that would be a disaster. But the church as it was supposed to be, as it was intended by God, the wife is supposed to reflect that back to her husband as the church should to Christ. It's an intertwining thing. The husband is supposed to love his wife with everything that he has as himself, more than himself, be willing to give his life for his wife as Christ gave his life for the church. The husband is supposed to encourage and help separate her from things of the world. Not saying that she can't do it on her own, but the husband is supposed to play a part. Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We are supposed to encourage and sharpen our wife. As a quote from the Alliance Council, one lady said, we are supposed to complete each other, not compete with each other. We are supposed to complete each other one half of the puzzle. We are supposed to together, just as individually I'm supposed to look like Christ, individually you're supposed to look like Christ. Marriage, together, we should look like Christ. Our unity between me and faith, or faith and I, should be a picture of the Christ's unity with the church. It should be indistinguishable. should be. Husbands are supposed to love their wives. Now, couple things here, just a couple miscellaneous notes. It said in here, wives submit to your husbands. That is not talking to the husband and saying, husbands, make your wives submit. It's a direction to wives saying, you submit to your husband. See, a willful submission of a wife to her husband in spiritual things produces a worship to God. A forceful submission from the husband is not submission, it's actually suppression. And that's abuse. We are instructed to love our wives. Love them more than necessarily hating where they may be in that particular moment in time. Wives are supposed to submit to their husbands. Husbands are never supposed to force their wives to submit. They receive their instruction from God. They submit as an act of their obedience and worship to God. Husbands don't force that. Because when a husband does force that, it becomes abuse. And instead of being a woman who is completely founded in God and stable in her marriage and produces an anointing for different areas of ministry, if a husband suppresses his wife, then she becomes morose and just about useless in a lot of areas. And I've seen that happen. I've seen both, both stages. And I've been flirting with both things at times in my life where you're like well the Bible says you're not supposed to argue with me well that's really not what the Bible says but I've been there I've been at that point like quit trying to challenge what I think God's telling us to do and really and truthfully at that particular time she heard from God way better than I did I was so headstrong to make a move 
that, and God was telling me to wait, but I was ignoring God and then I was ignoring my wife because the truth is Christ has sovereignty, but Christ always hears the prayers of the church. Our wives are supposed to challenge us, supposed to help us, supposed to encourage us, just like we're supposed to challenge, to encourage, to help sanctify. It's supposed to be ironing, iron, sharpening iron. Make sense? The wife was taken from the side. She was not taken from the head, so she's not supposed to rule over her husband. And she was not taken from the foot, so he's not supposed to walk all over her. She was taken from the side to show unity, partnership. Now, here's a big one. And this is challenging for everyone in this room, especially for men, because it's challenging for me, so I'm just going to take it that I'm not that bad. It's challenging for all men, and I'm just falling under that all-men category instead of saying, well, this challenges me, and I'm the only one. I can show you biblically how the church is supposed to go out and reach the lost, how the church is supposed to heal the sick, how the church is supposed to raise the dead, how the church is supposed to cast out demons, how the church is supposed to, how the church is supposed to, how the church is supposed to. I can show you that biblically. I, just like I can show you biblically how this is the wife's responsibility, this is the husband's responsibility, this is the wife's responsibility. She's supposed to raise the kids, she's supposed to do this, he's supposed to provide, he's supposed to do this. I can show you all of those things biblically. However, I can also show you biblically that Christ never asked the church to do it on its own. He always empowers the church. He always helps the church. He always encourages the church. Just like we as partners in a marital relationship should never expect, just because it's technically their responsibility, we should never give the entirety of their responsibility. Then we should love one another enough to go above and beyond. See, psychologists talk about marriage and they talk about this give and take, give and take, give and take. I don't believe that. I believe a give and give and give and give because if you're given and given and given everything that you've got to the relationship and your spouse is giving and giving and giving and giving everything that they got to a relationship, then you're both going to be receiving, receiving, receiving all the time because you're both giving everything that you got. Because if you're in a give and take, then you start keeping score and say, well, I did the laundry, I did the dishes, I got the kids up, I put them to bed, I did this, I did this, and what did you do? You did this, this, and this. I did five, six things, and you did two or three things. That's we're not we're not 50-50 here. No, it should be give, 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 give. So I want to go somewhere, and I know I've been doing a lot of reading, and that's all right. Y'all are tough. Y'all keep reading with me. I'm gonna make you guys like reading before this is all said. In First Corinthians 13, most beautiful passage, one of the most beautiful passages in the whole Bible. First Corinthians 13, verse four. If I asked you the question, what is the basis for marriage? What has to be the basis for marriage? It should be, you should say something like, well, God has to be or love has to be, which are the same thing because God is love. But really in truth, if I asked you what the basis for marriage is, it should be love. God, love, one of those two responses. That's the basis for marriage. So we're going to walk through this and we're going to look from starting in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, where it talks about love is, love is, love is, we're going to look at that and say marriage is. Because if love is supposed to be the basis for marriage and supposed to be the very glue that binds marriage together, then we're going to look at this and we're going to follow it through and say, okay, marriage is. 
marriage is patient. I haven't been married a super long time. We've been married five years. But the one thing that I've learned is patience is underrated. When they're talking to you about marriage, patience is underrated because no matter who it is, there's going to be things that they do that get on your nerves. There's going to be things that you do that get on their nerves. Patience. Which also happens to be a fruit of the Spirit. So if we're abiding in the Spirit, then this patience should be produced because of the Spirit abiding in us. Marriage is kind. Being patient with one another. Being kind to one another. Even when they do something so awful. Even if, and she would never do this in a million years, but even if we had $100 in the bank account and we had rent coming up and had no idea how we were going to pay it, da 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 the list examples could go on. And she took that $100 and she went and bought us a dinner from Red Lobster and spent $89 and then left a you know $11 tip and came back and we had nothing in the bank account and she has all this seafood crab. We have a great meal and you're seething, I'm seething at the top because now I have no idea how we're going to pay rent or our light bill or whatever and I know that I should be angry. Love is patient. Love is kind. Maybe something occurred that I don't know about. Maybe somebody said, hey, I heard that you don't have the money for your rent, so I'm just gonna pay, I'm just gonna take care of it for you. And so maybe then it's like God provided for us in a mighty way, and this is just a celebration. Our anniversary is in three days, and I don't know how we're gonna do anything for that. Maybe that was her, the, her heart's intent in this little picture or imagery. Love is patient, love is kind. Let's be patient and be kind. Not just to one another, but especially to those that we find ourselves with if we, were mar- and if we are married. And if we're not, then we should still be patient and kind to everyone. Love does not envy or boast. This is a big one. Marriage does not envy or boast. We should never look at somebody else's marriage and say, why doesn't our marriage operate like that? Why doesn't our marriage operate like that? Look at what their wife does for them. Look at what their husband does for them. That's envy. Envy is looking at somebody else and desiring what they have. Our marriage shouldn't do that. Our relationship shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that with friendships. Let's take a step back. We shouldn't look at how our friendship is with somebody else and say, well, why doesn't our friendship look like their friendship? Or why doesn't our relationship with God look like their relationship with God? We should continue in the vein, if it's a biblical vein, in the vein that we're in and allow God to grow us in that. Love does not boast. Marriage does not boast. You shouldn't brag about your marriage because somebody else's marriage may be on the rocks and if you go to them and you're talking about how great your marriage is and how awesome it is, it may just further drive a nail in the coffin for theirs. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now let's switch back. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Just for a second. I've been talking about marriage, and I'm sure that everyone that's listening is applying that to a natural marriage. But understand that this is a great mystery, and they're speaking concerning Christ and the church. This is how we should be in our relationship with Christ. This is how we should understand our relationship with Christ. Christ doesn't envy. 
He's not boasting. He's not arrogant. He's not resentful. He's not taking into account all the wrongdoings. He's not sitting up there with a checklist like you've done this good, you've done this good, you've done this bad. I've done this, this, and this, but you've only done this and this. We should understand that all of these parameters that we're setting for the stage for on marriage actually applies to our relationship with Christ and that His love for us never ends because so often we are so quick to allow our love, not just in marriage, but our love in relationships with friends, with other things, to come to an end when it's really all we have to do is just love beyond that. And sometimes, especially in friendships, sometimes you have to let people walk out of your life, but you forgive them and you don't stop loving them. Love does not dictate the standard or the hierarchy of our relationships. Some people you just can't be that close with. As friends, I had some people walk out on my life that were very, very close to me very recently. Do I forgive them? Yes. Do I love them with everything that's in me? But they are just no longer capable because of some decisions that they made of being that close to me anymore. And while that's awful, while that's terrible, love does not take into account things wrong suffered. It doesn't rejoice in that. It doesn't boast like, yeah, they were wrong. I was right. It's not arrogant about it. Just hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things, and it never ends. And that's God's relationship towards us and God's thoughts towards us. Does all this make sense? Not really a jump and shout message, just a very, very practical message. If you're married, take these things and apply them to your marriage. Understand that you are responsible, husbands, to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And wives, you're responsible to regard your husband and to love your husband and respect your husband the same way that the church is intended to regard and respect and love Christ. And if you're not married, then apply it to all your friendships. Apply it to all your relationships. People that you meet that you've never met before, love them. And obviously I'm not talking about the same level of intimacy, but I'm talking about that love that consumes you that's for their best interest. Make sense? Alright, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for the opportunity to preach your word. Lord, it wasn't really a jump-shout message, a run-and-gun message. It was just simple. Simple truths weighing on my heart concerning relationships, marriage in particular. But Lord, it's not just the marriage of natural, like me being married to faith, but more the marriage of the spiritual, that You, Christ, are our bridegroom, and we, the church, together, collectively, make up the bride. And that you love us. That you're willing to give yourself for us. And we can follow the description down through 1 Corinthians of love. And we can see that you're patient with us in our failings, in our fall nature, in our falterings, and our missteps. And you're kind. Even when discipline's brought, it's brought in such a loving and kind manner. That you're patient with us. That you don't take into account those things suffered. That you forgive and you extend your love just as strong as it was before the mistake was ever made. So Lord, we thank you for that love. We thank you for that mercy. We thank you for that grace. And God, I just ask right now, just from an individual perspective of individuals here, if there's anyone in this church right now that realizes that they've misstepped and they're in need of that, that love and that mercy, and that grace to be extended to them. And they 
Lord, I ask right now that You would meet them where they're at. I ask right now that You'd meet them where they're at. If anyone's here and they need prayer, you can come to the front and we'll pray over you. All right, Lord. Thank You, Father. In Jesus' name, Amen.